Section 16 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Singeing the King of Spain's Beard. Part 2. Such an exploit was without precedent. The chivalry of Spain was as enthusiastic in its admiration at Drake's feat of arms as it was disgusted at the cumbrous organization which condemned it to inactivity. A whole day Drake waited where he was to try and exchange his prisoners for English galley slaves, but getting nothing but high compliments and dilatory answers for his pains, on the morrow he sailed. There was no time to lose. By his captures he had discovered the whole of Philip's plan. Out of the Mediterranean the divisions of Italy, Sicily, and Andalusia were to come and join the headquarters at Lisbon, where the Grand Admiral of Spain, the Marquis de Santa Cruz, was busy with the bulk of the Armada. At Cape St. Vincent was the road where the ships coming out of the Straits waited for a wind to carry them north, and there he had resolved to take his stand and fight everything that attempted to join Santa Cruz's flag in the Tagus such light airs prevailed that it was not till the end of the month that the fleet reached the road by that time its water was exhausted and as every headland was crowded with works commanding the anchorage and the watering-places drake at once saw he must take them in his usual off-hand way he summoned his council and told them over the dinner-table what he was going to do it was more than the vice-admiral's dignity and caution could endure in high dudgeon he returned to his ship, and in the midst of a gale which suddenly arose and drove the fleet to the north of the Cape, he indicted a long and solemn protest, not only against the contemplated operation, but against the unprecedented despotism with which Drake was conducting the whole expedition. Burra, though no doubt jealous of Drake, certainly believed he was doing nothing beyond his right and duty he felt he had been attached to the expedition as the most complete sailor in the kingdom and he valued and deserved his reputation in scientific knowledge of his art he was unrivalled and he was the only officer in the service who had fought and won a purely naval action no one therefore can fairly blame him for resenting the revolutionary manner in which his commander was ignoring him in contempt of the time-honoured privileges of the council of war drake in his hot self-confidence thought otherwise as he rode out the gale under the lee of st vincent and the tempest howled through his rigging once more there fell upon him the shadow of the tragedy which could never cease to darken his judgment already in cadiz harbour he had thought his vice-admiral too careful of his ship when the shot were flying and now he saw in him another doughty sent by the friends of spain to hang on his arm in persisting he told lord burleigh he committed a double offence not only against me but it toucheth further to his embittered sense the querulous protest was a treasonable attack on his own authority and in his fury he brutally dismissed the old admiral from his command and placed him under arrest on his flagship in vain the astonished veteran protested his innocence and apologized and made submission drake would not listen the ring of the headman's sword upon the desolate shores of Patagonia had deafened his ears to such entreaties forever. Two days later he was back in Lagos Bay, 
landing a thousand men for an attempt upon the town but in the evening after vainly endeavouring to induce the bodies of cavalry which hovered on their line of march to come within reach the troops re-embarked reporting the place too strong to be taken by assault such reports were not to drake's liking it was no mere cross-raiding on which he was bent but a sagacious stroke that was essential to the development of his new ideas to get command of the seas it was necessary that he should be able to keep the seas and for this a safe anchorage and watering places were necessary in default of lagos strategy and convenience both indicated st vincent road for his purpose it was commanded by forts but that did not deter him and resolved to have his way he next day landed in person near cape sagres on the summit of the headland was a castle accessible on two sides only the english military officers declared that a hundred determined men could hold it against the whole of drake's force but he would not listen it commanded the watering-place and he meant to have it detaching part of his force against a neighbouring fort which was at once evacuated he himself advanced against the castle and at the summit of the cliff found himself confronted with walls thirty feet high bristling with brass guns and crowded with soldiers the garrison had just been reinforced by that of the evacuated fort and to every one but the admiral the affair was hopeless he attacked with his musketeers and when they had exhausted their ammunition in the name of his queen and mistress he summoned the place to surrender in the name of his lord and master the spanish captain laughed at him whereupon drake more obstinate than ever sent down to the fleet for faggots and began piling them against the outer gate to fire it so desperate was the resistance that again and again the attempt failed for two hours the struggle lasted as fast as the defenders threw down the fire the english piled it up again and in the midst of the smoke and the bullets the admiral toiled like a common seaman with his arms full of faggots and his face black with soot how long his obstinacy would have continued it is impossible to say but at the end of the two hours the spanish commandant sank under his wounds and the garrison surrendered daunted by a feat which every one regarded as little short of a miracle the castle and monastery of st vincent together with another fort near it capitulated at the magician's first summons and left him in complete possession of the anchorage to water the fleet undisturbed having fired the captured strongholds and tumbled their guns over the cliffs into the sea drake returned to the fleet to find the sailors had not been idle between st vincent and a village some nine miles to the eastward which they had been ordered to burn they had taken forty-seven barks and caravels laden with stores for the armada and destroyed between fifty and sixty fishing boats with miles of nets the tunny fishery on which the whole of the adjacent country chiefly depended for its subsistence was annihilated for the time drake's work on the algarve coast was done and having watered the fleet and fished up the captured guns he sailed for lisbon his own idea had been to land there and smite philip's preparation at its heart but this the government had expressly forbidden still he hoped that the havoc he had made and the insults he had put on the spanish coasts might goad santa cruz to come out and fight him for three days he lay off cascais in sight of lisbon threatening an attack 
and sending polished taunts to the Spanish admiral. He offered to convoy him to England if his course lay that way. He took prizes under his very nose. With his fleet in loose order he sailed up to the very entrance of the harbour, but though seven galleys lay on their oars watching him from the mouth of the Tagus, Santa Cruz would not move, and Drake learned at last how deep was the wound he had inflicted. Philip's organization was completely dislocated. The fleet at Lisbon was unmanned, its crews had been shattered in Cadiz harbour, and the troops that were intended for it had been thrown into the defenceless city under the Duke of Medina Sidonia, with orders that while Drake was on the coast, not a man was to be moved. All thought of an attack on England was given up. It was even doubted whether by straining every nerve it would be possible to save the homeward-bound fleets from the Indies. The Italian squadrons were ordered to land their troops at Cartagena, and Philip hoped that by forced marches across the peninsula they might possibly arrive in time for Santa Cruz to sail before it was too late. Everyone else looked on the convoys as doomed. For Drake, having assured himself that Santa Cruz could not stir, and that England was safe for a year at least, resolved to make for the Azores and wait for the prey that had so narrowly escaped him the year before. On the third day of his stay off the Tagus he took advantage of a northerly gale to run for the anchorage at St. Vincent, which he had made his own, and where he intended to water and refresh for the voyage. There, huddled under the lee of the Cape, was found a fresh crowd of store-ships which he seized. For nine days he lay there rummaging the ships, taking in water and sending the men ashore in batches to shake off the sickness with which, as usual, the fleet was attacked. Every day new prizes fell into his hands, and ere he sailed he had taken and destroyed forty more vessels and a hundred small craft. On May 22nd he put to sea, and as the news spread, a panic seized every commercial centre in the Spanish dominions. Half the merchants in Philip's empire saw ruin before them. The whole year's produce, both of the East and West Indian trade, was at Drake's mercy, and no one knew how Spain, with its resources already strained to the utmost, would survive the shock. Whatever might have been the result had these fears been realized, destiny seemed to have decided that in the channel should be played the last great scene. Drake had not been two days out when a storm struck his fleet and scattered it over the face of the sea. For three days it raged with extraordinary fury. Drake's own flagship was in dire peril, and when the heavens cleared, only three of the battleships and half a dozen smaller craft were together. Not a single merchant ship was to be seen, and the Lion, Burra's flagship on which he was still a prisoner, was missing too. Before leaving St. Vincent, Drake had told Walsingham that he ought to have at least six more cruisers to do his work properly, and now two-thirds of what he had before were gone. Still he held on, hoping to find some of the missing ships at the rendezvous in the Azores. On the morning of June 8th, St. Michael's was sighted, but not a sail had rejoined the flag except the spy, one of the Queen's gunboats, with the captain and master of the Lion on board. And they reported that the crew of Burra's ship had mutinied and carried him home. Then in the depth of his disappointment Drake's fury blazed out anew. 
his fierce self-reliance and fanatic patriotism had taught him to see a traitor in every man that opposed him and the bitter experience of his lifelong struggle against the enemies of his country and his creed could bring him but to one conclusion burrow was the traitor who had ruined the greatest chance of his career a jury was impanelled the deserter tried for his life found guilty and condemned to death it was little good except to relieve the admiral's anger the splendid opportunity was gone the fruit of his brilliant exploit was snatched from his lips for even had the remnant of his fleet been less shattered than it was the great convoys were beyond its strength the only hope was to hurry back to england and beg for reinforcements to fight santa cruz for the lifeblood of spain yet ere he sailed there was a consolation at hand as he lay waiting for his shattered squadron to close up fuming at traitors and marvelling at the inscrutable will of heaven the dawn of june ninth lit up the grey sea and showed him a huge carrack in the offing on a smart breeze he gave chase the carrack kept her course but as drake drew near began displaying her colours nervously drake made not a sign in reply but held on till he was within range then on a sudden with a blaze of her ensigns and her broadside the elizabeth bonaventura told the stranger what she was two of drake's squadron threw themselves resolutely athwart hawse of the enemy and the rest plying her hard with shot prepared to run aboard her towering hull but ere they closed her flag fluttered sadly down and the famous san felipe the king of spain's own east india man the largest merchantman afloat was a prize in drake's hands well might he wonder now at god's providence as with lightened heart he sailed homeward with his prize for not only was it the richest ever seen in england before or since not only was its cargo valued at over a million of our money but in it were papers which disclosed to our merchants all the mysteries and richness of the east india trade it was a revelation to english commerce it intoxicated the soberest capitalists and they knew no rest till they had formed the great east india company to widen the gap which drake had opened and to lay the foundation of our indian empire End of section sixteen